All right, why don't we get started? Hello, everybody. Uh, it's my pleasure to moderate this panel with some old friends. Um, why don't we get started since we have so much to cover? Uh, it was a couple of weeks ago on June 6th. I hesitate to tell this story because I just heard from Mike that I might have the wrong facts. Uh, I'm not sure who has the right facts, but on June 6th, apparently there was a missile launch from Yemeni territory and uh, a Saudi Patriot or an Emirati Patriot missile intercepted it successfully. Um, maybe it didn't make major headlines, uh, but I think we could all agree in this room that it was a big deal. It was a big deal not just because we haven't seen this since 1991, if I'm not mistaken, when Saddam Hussein was lobbing ballistic missiles uh, at Saudi targets, but it's important because it was a warning and a taste, a real world taste, not just a simulation or an exercise of the dangers of ballistic missile proliferation in the Gulf. So I start, I thought I would start with that because it's just a clear reminder of the threat and the fact that the Iranians continue to uh, grow in quality and in quantity uh, their missile arsenal. You know, we all have our views about the Iranian nuclear deal. Um, you know, a lot of us think that it was a mistake not to include the Iranian uh, missile arsenal in the talks. Others said that actually it would overwhelm the nuclear talks and might be better to actually discuss them in a separate venue. It uh, doesn't matter who's right and who's wrong. The fact of the matter is that those uh, missiles were not part of the conversation. So uh, maybe we can address that a little bit in here. Um, not too long ago also, there was a summit. I hesitate to call it a summit. It was a meeting between President Obama and his Gulf counterparts in Camp David. And we all know for a fact that missile defense integration in the Gulf was a topic of conversation. And it received uh, a nice boost, basically, following uh, the summit. Uh, those are some of the major developments that have happened since last time we met, last year. Uh, I was here on the same panel with the Admiral. This year I'm in the privileged position of actually being the moderator. So to, you know, to discuss the technological, the strategic, the regional, the political aspects of this story, I mean this year we have an absolutely terrific lineup and I couldn't be happier to moderate it. Uh, we all you all have uh, the uh, bios of Corey, Mike, and Admiral Kevin Cosgriff. Uh, those of you who are streaming, it's on the website as well. Uh, we have a lot to cover, so why don't we just go ahead and get started. Uh, Admiral, I'll start with you. You and I sat here last year, and uh, <laughs> we were wondering how Qatar would respond to a hypothetical right, right. missile launch from Iran against the Saudi target. We asked whether the Qataris will be the first to take the shot if they were the first country to actually intercept a missile fired from by the Iranians against the Saudis, I, I guess we left it an open-ended question. So you, uh, personally, I'm curious if you have changed your thoughts, if you have a different uh, response to that question. But maybe you can address it in the final remarks. More broadly, where are we today on the uh, technical yeah. aspects of missile defense integration in the Gulf? Well, I have different open-ended questions today, but uh, <coughs> I, I can't help but comment the, 
Yemen never ceases to disappoint, does it? I mean, we used to say that you could get any weapon on Earth for sale within 10 miles of the capital, Sana'a. And perhaps this proves the point, but we'll see. Well, thanks to the Atlantic Council for inviting us back, although there's a certain Groundhog Day aspect to this because as, as uh, stated, I was here last year and I was in a conference same subject the year before that. And many of the topics are the same ones that, that I was dealing with when I was the Fifth Fleet Commander. So it's, it's uh, as a frame of reference, uh, you need to think decades. And uh, each year's uh, iteration is really not that great. There are, there are improvements, but it's not that great. Um, the underlying reality of the Gulf, to state the obvious, is that the main actor in, in their, the air, Gulf air reality is Iran. It's always been Iran. It's going to continue to be Iran into the future. Uh, and even though, as Bilal said, everyone has their eyes on the nuclear talk, and certainly all the Arab eyes, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard missile forces remain a potent force in being even without nuclear weapons. Dozens of later model medium-range ballistic missiles, the Shahab and the Ghadar families, can essentially range any country in the GCC, uh, plus Israel, Turkey, parts of Egypt, and obviously not to mention any U.S. bases uh, or mass forces within, within those arcs. And it's also prudent to assume that a significant portion of their short-range uh, missiles, think scuds like the one in uh, a similar version to the one fired in Yemen, uh, would be used in any cross-Gulf strikes into the heartland of the GCC population and economic centers. Now, the, I think others up here are better equipped to discuss the nuclear issue, but uh, into any likely future, the conventional armed forces of Iran, they're, un they're unconventional ones, like the IRG and the Quds Force, and their terrorist proxies Hezbollah, constitute a compelling array of capabilities that underlie the defense decisions taken by the GCC countries and, and by the United States military in the region. And while we must focus on air and missile defense, Iran arguably has one of the regional navies that regularly goes to sea and exercises um, fairly competently. They can control aircraft from their ships uh, better than any of the Arab Gulf countries. So they're a force to be taken seriously. And similarly, uh, their Air Force is good enough. Uh, not excellent, not modern equipment, but it's good enough and you've got to pay attention to it. And similarly, they have the largest, one of the largest standing armies in the region. Most of this is known to this audience. And, and it, but it does set the context for any GCC-wide, which and perhaps uh, including Egypt, and dare I say it, perhaps sometime in the future, Israel, in any sort of cooperative effort. Uh, the question is whether in view of the positions being taken by the US, or maybe because of them, the GCC will be able to move beyond the, uh, what one observer called multilateral bilateralism, which is basically using the US hub and spokes uh, that characterize Gulf defense to date. If we focus in on missile defense, we can see both the promise and pitfalls of expecting too much too soon. 
uh, as I mentioned last year, this really is rocket science. And so the technical effort is significant and the cooperation that underlies it has to be technically competent. So briefly, let me look at it at a high level from both the military or technical side and also uh, a brief uh, foray into politics. On the technical side, you really need three major components to make this work. First of all, your fundamental systems have to be interoperable. Uh, the high-end systems like THAAD and, and PAC-3, both U.S. made, uh, can function as standalone entities in, in, their, in their respective countries that own them or to which they're deployed. And they can fairly easily interoperate uh, with adjoining forces, fairly easily interoperate with adjoining forces. But in as much as they're not the only systems in the country, and there's older U.S. ones, IHAWK still remains in the, in the inventory, as well as some countries have Russian equipment and there's European equipment. Uh, the degree of difficulty of that interoperability starts to ratchet up. Uh, I'd have to give the GCC low grades for interoperability still. Wow. Uh, integration is the architecting of two or more systems into a new or more expanded capability. That's the sine qua non of any missile defense architecture if you really want to be effective. As everyone knows, the, the batteries come with their own surveillance and fire direction equipment, uh, but that's not sufficient for the high speed, high altitude, theater-wide missile battle that would ensue uh, in any serious conflict with Iran. We need longer range and higher data rate surveillance, need modern command and control equipment, and, and more to that in a minute. Otherwise, it's just not going to work. So if it's a one-off shot into a patch of southwestern Saudi Arabia against a, a uh, more or less alerted or semi-alerted Pac-3 battery, uh, then that's one thing, but that's not missile defense. That's a one-off shot. Uh, an integration, the GCC is, is barely passing. In, matter, in many respects, it's maybe even unfair to, to try to grade them because it's not something they've really stepped up to in a, in a structured way. Uh, there are, there are uh, glimmers of hope, the UAE especially, with the knowledge that they're building via the Integrated Air and Missile Defense Center uh, in Al-Dafra. Uh, they've demonstrated, intellectually anyway, a deep appreciation for what's needed to be successful. And they are a, a rallying point, especially with the Saudis around those things. And I would expect with the new leadership in Saudi Arabia that you may see some motion from them to catch up. Lastly, if those are technical aspects of any uh, functioning missile defense system, uh, the commanders and crew of these systems must be extraordinarily highly trained and regularly drilled. Uh, otherwise, you'll have other sort of problems. Either they won't launch on alert or they'll launch it that we were talking about in the back room that blue-on-blue uh, blue, uh, with these systems is a very real threat. So they need to be very highly trained and very regularly drilled. And I think that it, that's an area of, of ongoing weakness, not only in missile defense, but across the GCC. And even amongst the better trained countries, UAE and, and Saudi Arabia, uh, they're going to have to adopt a much more intense culture 
uh, within their missile defense forces, and frankly, all their forces, uh, and all the way from the top down. This is not an exercise only roll it out when the, when the rhetoric gets too high capability. To be good at it, you gotta be doing it every single day. And that's a cultural challenge to, to have that level of intensity. <clears throat> Excuse me. On the political front, my expectation is the GCC is gonna continue to rely on the US as the ultimate guarantor of their defense and key partner for complex areas where improvements are gonna be measured in decades. There's a technical aspect of that and selling gear and all the systems to those countries. Uh, but it's deeper than that. They really do need the knowledge, skills, ability, and experience of the US and our European allies to make this really work coherently. Um, another aspect of cultural cooperation, you don't necessarily have to like your fellow royal to cooperate with him to common purpose. Maybe this goes to the Qatar uh, comment I made last year. And I could see a logical first step in an evolving system of systems being a federated approach uh, that largely shares a continuous long-range and linked surveillance system, continuous, uh, but command and control remain stovepiped inside each participa participating country. And that would include, uh, an effective system would include any U.S. systems, surveillance, or batteries, and the Aegis ships that would be in the Gulf. And to some extent, this exists. We've exercised it, I exercised it seven years ago, so it's, uh, it's, it's not beyond reachable for the GCC to do it uh, themselves, currently is a little bit beyond their reach. But the architecture, the fundamentals of it are there. It could be, it could be leveraged very quickly. The good news or the bad news, depending on how you look at it, the regional is ample regional stimuli causing more and not less cooperation among the GCC and other like-minded Arab states. Uh, Iran's, as I said, nuclear ambitions would be front and center on this list, but so too are the fracturing of Syria, the ISIS expansion, the Iraq debacle, the deep Arab, Persian, and Sunni Shia tensions. So this backdrop may further stimulate Saudi especially and even UAE to pick up the pace. Um, I'm optimistic the leadership in those countries are young. I think they get it, the new leadership in Saudi. Um, they have any number of compelling reasons to move out and I think this would be a good time to start. My final questions, questions would be um, really even broader than, than the technical aspects is do we really think that the Gulf will ever be not dependent on the US and European allies for its defense? And is that, in fact, even a desirable outcome? And then the $64,000 question, does anybody think that a nuclear-armed Iran will make this better? Thank you. Well, now we know the reason why they invite you every year, uh, Admiral. You're incredibly efficient. Uh, thank you for that. Mike, uh, I remember a couple of weeks ago we had a chat over the phone. I remember vividly because I was driving through some very unstable weather. I had you on speakerphone and I think you had me as well. Uh, you told me there was light at the end of the tunnel regarding a shared uh, early warning system and, um, and an intelligence system as well. I mean, that's good news. Uh, last time I checked, we were nowhere near close. Uh, do you want to describe to us some of the institutional and structural challenges of ballistic missile uh, defense integration? 
Well, I'll try to. Um, uh, first, I just want to thank you and Ian for inviting me uh, to this event, and uh, I'm very happy to be here. Um, I wanted to make some comments regarding um, what you said, Admiral. Uh, cooperation within the Gulf, um, it does occur now on the, in the maritime domain, largely because of yourself, Admiral Fox, Admiral Miller, um, who have brought that to the fore. And it's the one example where the Gulf states have worked in an international coalition effectively. Um, I mean, I, you might characterize it a little bit differently, but it is the one area that's been a success. If you look at the GCC history, though, um, that is, uh, it's almost a unique success uh, as opposed to what we uh, have always wanted to see. Um, well, I've been touring the Gulf uh, for last six months, I think I've made four trips. Um, as part of a, uh, our institute is doing a large study on uh, missile defense cooperation in the Gulf. We've held a, a number of uh, workshops and have been interviewing anyone that will uh, allow us to come in and visit them. And I, I would say that a couple things. The mood in the Gulf is very different today uh, than it was even three years ago when I, when I was resident in Bahrain. Um, there is a palpable angst among all of the GCC states, even Qatar, who claims that Iran is not their enemy. Um, but the turmoil that's been created since the start of the Arab Spring, I call it the Arab turmoil, um, has really um, frightened the, the, the security structures um, within each of the Gulf states. But you know the ascendancy of Iran uh, their ability to project their influence in Iraq, uh, Syria, uh, to a lesser extent in Yemen, uh, has really, um, I would characterize it as frightened uh, the Gulf leadership. Um, the nuclear deal is, is certainly not going to um, allay their fears. Uh, in fact, I think, uh, I sometimes think that a nuclear deal will make them more nervous than a, a non-nuclear deal. And quite honestly, I, I can see that I, that perception is, is real. I, I, I understand their arguments that uh, they really do fear that if there is a uh, reconciliation between Iran and the United States, uh, that American commitments will drift um, across the Gulf uh, and we'll start referring to it as the Persian Gulf instead of the Arabian Gulf. Um, <laughs> Uh, and those are, those are real, hard-felt perceptions that are held by uh, the Gulf Arabs. Um, we may argue that they're, they're not as real as they claim them to be, but this is how they see the security environment in the region. Um, well, we have developed, a, a, I guess what I'd call a working hypothesis um, by uh, my colleague Toby Dodge and I in as we've talked with uh, our, our Gulf uh, friends and partners. You know, just as the Iranian Revolution in 1979, the Iran-Iraq War, um, generated a tremendous amount of fear among the monarchies, um, and there was the formation of the GCC. Now, the GCC hasn't been all that effective uh, in the, well, in most of the domains. <laughs> it's, you know, economic, uh, financial, cultural. I mean, it, it really has just been a coordinating body, and, and it's, um, it, there's been no serious attempt to, to create GCC forces um, such as Peninsula Shield. And in fact, the, the, the weakness of Peninsula Shield forces in, in 1990 and 91 uh, opened up a lot of eyes uh, 
in the Arab states, and it drove them to strong bilateral relationships with the Americans, the, the British, and the, uh, and the French. Um, so they rely on outside powers for their security. But now we're seeing a, a real change in attitude, as I mentioned, that there's a palpable fear um, on many levels, and it is driving them closer and, and closer to cooperating. We hear discussions about a 100,000 uh, troop um, Arab force that would include the Egyptians. Um, and we saw the Saudi-led air campaign in Yemen. Um, and when I say Saudi-led, I mean it was a coalition of a lot of the Arab states working together to carry out, um, I, I guess, a, a reactionary impulse uh, in Yemen. Uh, I don't think there was a strategic vision other than sending a message to Iran that you know we are going to take things into our own hands. But you could sense in discussions with uh, the Gulf Arabs that they were quite proud of what they were able to do, um, although it would have never succeeded without uh, American backing and you know logistic support, etc. But they're beginning to understand not only the value of cooperation, but what it takes to cooperate, um, and that you can't just assemble forces together. You have to have worked and trained, drilled together, as, as the Admiral mentioned. Um, but this sense of pride, I think, is driving them closer and closer to uh, a true cooperative set of relationships on security issues. Um, I sometimes think it's a perfect storm of events, and, and if we're fortunate, we'll be able to, to um, take advantage of it. Now, as uh, Frank Rose mentioned in the earlier session, uh, there is a consensus within the GCC and the United States uh, towards establishing a ballistic missile early warning system that is um, that goes across the Gulf uh, states. Um, this is very good news. Um, I think they're, the Gulf states are very serious about their commitment to this. Um, I question whether they fully understand what they're trying to do, and in fact, this this brings me to the very big question that we've come across um, as we've talked with uh, our friends in the Gulf, and that is, what do they expect missile defense to do? What are the objectives? I've, I've probably asked this question 100, 150 times to different people, and I've never received an answer. I don't think they have a strategic vision of what missile defense is supposed to do for them in the Gulf. And until they establish that strategic vision, um, they can't create the policies that will coordinate the activities of all the states. Um, you know, there, there, there would be no planning, there would be no harmonization of um, uh, acquisition uh, of systems, um, no uh, common con uh, concepts of operations, you know, training, all these things that follow uh, the development of policy. In fact, in two of the workshops, we had a NATO um, uh, uh, member who helps run the missile defense uh, work in NATO gave a talk about policy creation and how that policy drives all the requirements and coordinates the activities. Um, the good news is there was a lot of interest in this and uh, the Emiratis uh, and the Saudis were and the Kuwaitis were all asking can we go to NATO and can you teach us how this is done? Um, I took that as a positive step, um, but uh, there are some real hard realities and issues that they're going to, to face, um, and I'll 
hopefully conclude with, uh, with a couple of um, open-ended questions that maybe we can discuss. Um, as I said, the good news is they want to learn how to do this. The bad news is they don't know what they really want yet. Um, or at least they're not telling me. Um, another issue that continually came up with, uh, came up during discussions was technology transfer. Uh, the Gulf states um, articulate a position that they're very frustrated with the U.S. government's inability to um, provide certain, uh, or you know, some, um, or allow them to see how the different linkages work and some of the technologies that are quite sensitive. Um, they continually bring up this topic, but it's not something that needs to be resolved now, or at least this is what we've been telling them. Um, yes, technology transfer could be an issue, but there are a number of steps that need to be taken uh, prior to actually solving that problem. That is the creation of policies, strategic visions, plans, um, acquisition strategies, et cetera. Um, that brings the question, how would the GCC procure uh, a joint missile defense early, uh, uh, early warning system or missile defenses? Would it be done through the GCC Secretariat? Does the GCC Secretariat have an acquisition body? Um, you know, if, if Lockheed or Raytheon sells kit to the GCC, whose you know, belly button do they push when they haven't been paid? I mean, these are just fundamental issues that need to be addressed, um, and I don't see any real action uh, moving forward there. Um, there's also the question of, of if it's a GCC-wide purchase, you know, how does that affect the acquisition agencies in each of the countries? And I think you probably understand what I mean by that. Um, overall, I'm more optimistic than I thought I would be. Uh, but I was quite pessimistic going into this, this project. Um, but I see a lot of, of rays of sunlight beginning to, to peek through the clouds. Uh, they're serious. I don't think they appreciate the challenge of cooperation, but they're moving forward. So with that, I'll leave it open to questions, comments, Thank howls you, Mike. of indignation, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Uh, maybe in addition to the questions that Admiral Kosker phrased, we can, uh, this is for Ian, maybe this is for next year's, we can structure the panel around those excellent questions. Uh, uh, those are really great questions. Uh, all right, Corey, what about the politics of it? Um, my understanding is that GCC relations have gotten better since last year's feud uh, between the Qataris on the one hand and the Saudis and the Emiratis and the Bahrainis on the other. But do you think this relative improvement in uh, political relations is sufficient to make progress on a lot of the issues that uh, our co-panelists have been discussing? Uh, so to answer the question directly, yeah, I okay. actually do think um, the cooperation that is coalescing between the GCC states is adequate for their challenges. Uh, the bad news is, I think, that is true for all sorts of reasons that portend uh, danger in the future. And I, I want to make four points about that. The first is about Iran. The second is about the United States. The third is about the countries in the region. And the fourth is, fourth is about missile defense, specifically. So first, on Iran. It seems to me uh, unquestionable that the big victor of the changes that have occurred in the Middle East, some occurring from within the region, some imposed on it from without, uh, the big beneficiary of those has been Iran. 
You remove Iraq as a counterweight. Uh, we take no action when Iran is actively destabilizing other countries in the region. The, the, uh, the way Hamas and Hezbollah have been emboldened and empowered, that we are allowing the head of the IRGC to be walking around on video without crosshairs covering that video um, is an amazement to me. So, so Iran's the big beneficiary, and the countries in the region appreciate that much more than we do. That's the basis of the cooperation. We and they are not solving the same problem, though, right? The United States government is solving the problem of managing and preferably limiting Iran's nuclear weapons program. The problem the countries in the region really want to solve is this burgeoning of Iranian influence and a growing sense of Iranian hegemony in the region. And until those two things align on Iran policy, I think uh, we are going to see cooperation in the region. And this is what the collapse of confidence and American credibility looks like, which takes me to the second point. That our Iran, we don't have an Iran policy. We have an Iranian nuclear weapons limitation policy. And in addition to having a monothematic uh, policy, we are using one tool to achieve it, and that is sanctions. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that is much too narrow a basis to, to support a genuine approach to limiting Iran's influence in the region in a way that will make the GCC and other countries in the region confident that we and they are solving the same problem. Uh, so by narrowing our focus onto Iran's nuclear weapons programs, and I, to answer an earlier question you didn't ask me, Bilal, which is, I think it was perfectly reasonable to leave ballistic missiles out of the Iranian nuclear negotiations, but boy, that should be our first follow-up. Yep. And it ought to be all the countries in the region, and we ought to have in the negotiations an insistence about limitations or prevention of Iranian uh, proliferation to non-state actors. Sure. So, so we ought to demand that the Iranians not just limit their own programs, but limit their proliferation to destabilizing actors in the region which hard to see why Iran would do that, right? Because this has been a story about Iran seeking the political value of military weapons and us pretending that the weapons themselves are the issue, not what is making them so valuable to Iranians and so fearful to everybody else. So we need an actual strategy broader than limiting the Iranian nuclear program if we anticipate either restoring American credibility or preventing a cascade of nuclear and ballistic missile proliferation around the region, um, or if we uh, want countries in the region to be actively involved and supportive of what we're trying to achieve in the region and beyond. Which takes me to my third point, which is the countries in the region. Um, I think the... Um, 
you know, the difficulties are enormous and obvious. Who's going to command this fort, right? Cooperation among the countries in the region has mostly been, you promise you'll support me while I'm not going to support you. Uh, and that's not a particularly robust basis to do something as extraordinarily militarily difficult as missile defenses. Um, but I also think the United States, you know, I'm sympathetic to what President Obama is trying to do with the, with the notion of shifting more responsibility to the countries whose security is immediately involved. But the way you do that is actually to quietly underwrite their success and give them all the credit. And w this administration has not demonstrated proficiency at either of those tasks, right? We take all the credit and um, we don't set them up to be successful. Um, even the fact that, that with apologies, Mike, that we are saying that the Saudis couldn't have possibly done this in Yemen without our help is actually undercutting both their ability and their willingness to do these kinds of things. We ought to be, um, we ought to be helpful not broadcasting our own assistance because we actually haven't made a decision about whether we want the countries in the region to solve their problems or we want to solve them. What it looks to me like President Obama's policy is it, the unreasonable demand that countries in the region solve their own problems by the means and with the outcomes that we think are best. And of course, nobody does that, right? Anybody who's a parent knows you can't pull that off, <laughs> much less pull it off with sovereign nations. And so if we actually expect the countries in the region to solve this problem without a lot more involvement from us, we need to come to terms with what a Saudi-dominated Middle East looks like. Um, or an Egyptian-dominated Middle East looks like under this Egyptian government. And we probably also need to answer the question for ourselves about whether we believe, to take me to my fourth point, that the country in the region can dial down both the conflicts within it and the threats it poses outside the region without coming to an agreement on the role of political Islam. Because I think um, the hopefulness, the, the demand for better opportunities by people in the region that drove the uprisings against governments two years ago. Um, there's, I don't sense much hope in the region. What I sense is seething resentment. That change once again proves not possible in the region. And that is a ticking time bomb for the region, for us. And that, we can't just believe that the weapons themselves uh, carry this political significance. They are proxies for political commitment, but they are not political commitment. And we need to engage with political commitment in the region to help people achieve their aims. Not just governments in the region achieve their aims, but people in the region achieve their aims. For them to find a level that is socially comfortable for them of where their religion fits in their public life, about how that affects their method of governance. If we don't re-engage on those problems in a very serious way, 
the turmoil is going to continue. And, and no amount of defensive systems or cooperation between the governments or American press for them to solve their problems is actually going to get traction on that. We really need to politically engage on the opportunities that are driving the region's frustrations. I think we can all agree with that. Uh, maybe a couple of questions before I turn to the audience uh, and whoever wants to take them. The first one is a bit more technical. I think the word that I didn't hear in the conversation is cruise missiles also. I think my understanding of the Iranians only recently have successfully uh, been able to reverse engineer some Russian technology and build a long-range cruise missile. If we thought countering ballistic missiles was difficult, right. I mean, try, try cruises. I mean, President Reagan called them slow flyers uh, for a reason, because they're able to go under the radar and fly at uh, much lower speeds. Uh, Mike, Kevin, whoever wants to take them, uh, what about the Iranians' capabilities as far as cruise missile uh, technology? I'd rather try to shoot a cruise missile down. For the reasons? You have less warning, <clears throat> but uh, assuming that you have a adequate speak to ships, assuming you have, you know, an Aegis system in your back pocket, uh, but an adequate uh, radar that can see that thing as soon as it cuts the horizon. <clears throat> Most of them aren't emitting until that's especially the ones you're talking about. And they all have different flight profiles to complicate the issue, some of which accelerate in the end game. But all that aside, it's, it's a variation on an air defense problem versus shooting a missile down, which might be just above the Earth's atmosphere. So uh, speeds are greater, your decision time's compressed uh, in both scenarios, but the, the target by and large is a little bit easier to get your head around with a cruise missile. You're, but it's another thing you gotta worry about. Sure, you're yeah, nodding, I, you're in agreement? Well, I, one, um, I would take, I'd push back a little bit on Iran's, quote, success at reverse engineering the KH-55. Um, <coughs> we haven't actually seen it fly. We've seen the booster attached to what looks like a um, KH-55 sure. um, being fired out of a launcher. Um, that's a very sophisticated technology, sure. and I don't think that they could reverse engineer. In fact, I'm, um, I'm not a big believer in, quote, reverse engineering of very complex mechanical systems. Um, and it, you know, the, the turbofan engine on there is quite sophisticated. Um, but we have seen a lot of activity in Iran, um, and they are pursuing uh, cruise missile capabilities, and it's just a matter of time. I mean, uh, you know, they have a long history of purchasing a lot of um, technology and equipment from the Chinese. Uh, we still see it continue to flow into the region. Um, and it is, it is a, a tough um, task to defend against cruise missiles, but I would, I would agree with the, with the Admiral, and I would just say that I think detection is probably the most difficult mm -hmm. uh, task. It's not, shooting it down is, is not the, as difficult as it is with a, a ballistic missile, um, so I'll, I'll leave it at that. So I want to pile in on this one as well, because <laughs> I think we sometimes with missile defenses tend to think of it as a one-shot, you know, if a cruise missile gets fired with no warning at us, will we have the ability to shoot it down? And maybe, maybe not, depending on the circumstances, 
but the second one we're sure gonna, because it's never gonna get fired, right? Because once you see where it's coming from, we're so gonna destroy to where it's coming from. And so I think we ought to be, we ought to think about the problem in multiple iterations. We ought to think about the problem in terms of our advantages, which is the synthesis, synthesis of information and ability to respond in asymmetric ways that are gonna strengthen deterrence, especially after a first shot. Sure. Delivery uh, systems? Yeah, it's, shoot and scoot works. I mean, reminded when, when we were counting tanks coming out of Kosovo and other rolling stock that the Yugoslavs have put in, or Serbs have put in there, we counted far more leaving when it was all said and done than we ever counted going in. How'd that work? So uh, there's, it's really hard to get the launcher, is really my point. So You may not get that specific launcher. Their day two is going to be pretty bad, but day one they could, we could take our licks. Right, but we focus so much on the day one problem that we that actually right. plays into strengthening Iran, right? Because if all they have to do is one, fire one cruise missile that we can't defend against, if that equals victory, then we are in fact ourselves making Iran into the hegemon in the region. We need to we need to balance what we say to remind ourselves that day two is actually where we win this, and everybody knows that. I'll ask one more question and we'll turn to the audience. Uh, Corey, you mentioned that an Iran nuclear deal, rightly so, would not be sufficient to pacify and secure the region. The United States would need a far more comprehensive security strategy to put out all the fires in the region. Uh, just very briefly, I know you've addressed some of them. What, in your mind, would be the core pillars of such a comprehensive security strategy? Um, first and foremost, we have to answer the question to our friends and allies in the region what we're doing with Iran, right? What is, the, what is our vision for Iran's role in the region at the end of the day? And we have not answered that question for the countries in the region, and that's why they're so nervous. Um, we need to, it seems to me, our objective with Iran should uh, be the suitable American objective anywhere, which is an Iran that respects its citizens doesn't destabilize countries in the region, and plays by the rules, is an Iran we could welcome, we would encourage to be strong and wealthy and influential. If Iran's not those things, we are gonna contain it as small as we possibly can, and we're gonna help our friends and allies in the region to be strong and vibrant and prosperous um, and cooperative because Iran is not playing by the rules that we want for the region, and until they accept that, as Henry Kissinger famously questioned, whether they are a state or a cause, we want them to be a state. And if they're gonna be the kind of state that we can help and reward, that would be fantastic for us, fantastic for the region, and best of all, for the Iranian people. Great, anything right. you wanna to add to? We're not Sorry, willing to do that. I like the containment idea. Uh, you know, the unstated desire in uh, the Cold War was regime change. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we seem to, we, oh no, we're not trying to get regime change in Iran. <laughs> Wouldn't be all bad. What we ought to be doing in addition to the nuclear agreement 
is pushing Iran back into a box. Exactly. Right? The head of the IRGC ought to be terrified to leave Iran's territorial borders. That's an Iran that is contained. Yeah, we definitely need to follow up. Uh, all right, let me turn to the audience who's been very patient. Uh, I'll just ask three things. Uh, identify yourself, make it short, and please make it a question, not a comment uh, in the <coughs> back. Saeed Al-Wahabi, uh, Arab Gulf State Institute in, in Washington. So uh, the new leadership in Saudi Arabia came to power early this year with uh, new ideas. But one, one, one idea about defense is that the new prince appointed two senior staff in his ministry focusing on the uh, military and industry within the Department of Defense or Ministry of Defense Saudi Arabia. And he brought them from the petrochemical industry with the aim of expanding the industry within the, within the Ministry of Defense. So I'm wondering what you take about either the present or the future of uh, military industry in Saudi Arabia, and if there is a role model among the Gulf countries. Who's comfortable taking that? <laughs> well, um, <clears throat> we, we've seen the United Arab Emirates take a lead on this, and they have created an indigenous uh, capacity to develop certain kind of niche uh, weaponry. And I think Bilal, you've written a report on this um, that's actually worth reading. Um, <laughs> not that all your stuff isn't worth reading, but that's, that's nice a very recovery. good, yeah, yeah, it's a very good. <laughs> That sounded horrible. It's Mike. a very good. Yeah, I know. It's a very good report, and I urge everyone to read it. Is what I meant to say. Um, yes, I mean I. Th I think that uh, it would be good for Saudi Arabia and the other countries to create a defense industry of their own, but they're going to have to pick niche uh, technologies to to pursue, and I would argue um, labor-intensive. Um, weapon building is probably not going to be what meets the demands of the people, meaning jobs and opportunities. Um, I, I think if they, they really want to succeed, they're going to have to look in the technology fields that uh, are less labor intensive. We're going to laugh about this for a long time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> who's next? Uh, let me just comment on it. Without putting too fine a point on it, uh, you know, we need, we need these indigenous uh, industries to be indigenous <laughs> and not just in the front office and, and those folks that go into those jobs be the com computer programmers or electrical engineers or whatever uh, you know need to take the education they're getting in Saudi Arabia and in Europe and the United States and then take it and actually take it into the workplace themselves and apply it and uh, that that's part of the intensity of of, uh, of commitment that I think I would want to see on the civilian side of the Ministry of Defense, even as I want to see it on the Armed Forces side of committed 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year commitment to defending the country. Great. Nobody said anything right. that anyone here objects to? That can't be true. Please. Thank you. My name is Chin Ningwen, Great Voice of Vietnamese Americans. Thank you for a very thorough uh, presentation. Would you please discuss the role of Israel, China, and Russia 
and what do you think happened recently at our SNED uh, dialogue with China here in Washington? Did that help any in the big picture? Thank you. Anybody? Wow. Um, I will take that in pieces because I'm not sure I can, I can uh, make it general. So the role of Israel is fascinating and changing in part because the countries in the region lack so much confidence in the United States right now. Um, the fact that we are not pushing back on an expansionist and destabilize, an expansionist Iran destabilizing its neighboring countries is what set all these boats rocking and changed the political calculus for countries in the region. It used to be that some countries in the region would quietly tell American researchers when they were there that, uh, that if Israel was going to take out the Iranian nuclear program, they'd turn their radars off and pretend they didn't see the Israelis go by. Um, my sense is the cooperation is a lot more enthusiastic and deep now, and that's actually a great thing for all the countries in the region. It changes the political calculus about recognition of Israel. It changes the, the understanding of what Israel can contribute to stability in the region. Um, those are good things. The role of Russia and China. Uh, the role of Russia is invidious in the region. The role they are playing in Syria is an outrage at all sorts of levels. And I think the behavior of Russia towards its own neighbors, uh, most notably the invasion and barbarity that they are imposing on Ukraine right now, um, suggests to me that uh, Russia is going to be even more problematic. Like, bad enough what they're doing now, but I think we ought to be deeply skeptical about any snapback of sanctions associated with an Iranian nuclear agreement, because I don't see why the Russians are going to vote for sanctions against anybody when they are struggling so hard to get out from under sanctions that they have richly earned um, from the Europeans and the United States. The Chinese have a, a more interesting and delicate role to play. And it is, for me, a very important indicator about whether China sees itself as a growing into a role like the United States has, one where you articulate what the principles of your engagement in the region are and actively try and negotiate people towards that. I think in some ways China has very similar interests to other outside countries in the region and has a potentially very positive role to play in the Middle East. Uh, whether it chooses to will actually be a really important indicator about how China is developing as a great power. Unless you guys want to add to that, I can go to another question. Yeah, go to another question. But I, I, let me, well, no, let me make one <laughs> comment. Uh, it's been fascinating to watch over the last two, three years um, Russian activity in the Gulf itself. You're starting to see a lot of Russian business interests um, at the big hotels. Mm -hmm. um, I know they've signed some sort of commercial deal with the Bahrainis, and suddenly Gulf Air has a direct flight to Moscow. Um, I, I think that 
you know, Russia's role in the region is beginning to grow, uh, and it's not a military role per se. It is a, you know, they're, they're actually trying to exercise soft power, but they're also trying to use the Gulf as a back door to avoid sanctions. Um, and it'll be very interesting. And I, I, I think that China is, uh, it's a very interesting case. Um, China is, seems to be focused on two things, access to markets and access to resources. Sure. Um, so they are, they are playing an increasingly uh, larger role. And the Gulf states themselves are beginning to think about the Far East as a major investment uh, portfolio for their sovereign wealth funds. Fund. So um, I, I see those relations growing over time. Well, wasn't there a recent meeting between uh, President Putin and Mohammed bin Salman, the mm -hmm. Saudi defense minister? Yeah. So I'll just probably show us more of the uh, increasing relations. Anything you want to add, Admiral, before I go to another question? I like the, the pairing of the word invidious in Russia. <laughs> well done, Corey. Uh, Barry, do you still want to ask a question? or? Okay, I'll go to the lady first, and then I'll go to you. Oh, hi, Sharon Bovat, uh, Voice of a Moderate. Quick question. You mentioned the people of Iran and also um, versus the government. I've, a lot of people that have relatives that are Iranian immigrants to the U.S. have reached out to me because their relatives desperately want normalized um, normalized relations. Now, unfortunately, that's not going to happen for, I was told, 18 summits about seven years into the second term of the next president. So, but the missiles is key to when it comes to even even talking about that. So of course we have the nuclear agreement, then we have to agree with the missile situation. What do you think is going on with the average people? You mentioned that, it inspired me. How do they get to communicate to their government what they want? They seem to be talking to us, but what? how does their government understand and what is that progress? Thank you. Okay, just hold your response for a sec. I'll, I'll take another question also, yes. Actually, a follow-on to the previous one, more a technical one. The, one of the ways Russia and China are getting involved in the Gulf is selling them weapons, including what they're trying to do with some of their missile defense systems. Um, you know, the, the, the Russians have S-300, and the Chinese have a somewhat less capable, but also more or less expensive version they're trying to sell. Would you want to assess the technical and perhaps political implications of that if, if they're actively engaged in that market? That's a great question. I'll take one more. Uh, the gentleman in the back right here. Andrew Pierre, Global Insights. Um, one hears, in my judgment, somewhat glib um, comments from frequently nowadays about the risk of proliferation in the Middle East. Um, and a number of countries come to mind, including, I should say, Egypt. Uh, given the technical difficulties that we've been talking about this morning, just with regards to missile defense, um, not to mention the, uh, the continued dependence upon American extended deterrence, uh, how likely is uh, nuclear proliferation going to be or rapidly develop over the course of the next even 10, 15 years? Anybody wants to respond, please. <laughs> why, don't, why don't we limit it to those three uh, in any order, uh, whatever you prefer. I'll take the last one. Is uh, that's a, that's an I think that's the 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 subject of the discussion between the administration and the GCC states right now. Is you know, do you trust us? We can cut a deal. We can hold off. We can keep the genie in the bottle for ten years and. Uh, 
but just in case, we're going to be here, and we're not going to just throw the door open on the sanctions. We're going to somehow we'll have some fine-grained, you know, metering of that. Won't be that way, but that's what we're saying to them. And uh, uh, basically, we'll be here if you really, really need us. Um, you, you raise a slightly different point too. Is on the other side of it, controlling nuclear forces isn't you know just slap a nuke on the on the warhead and you know you're good to go. Uh, it's it's a different animal. It's different command and control, different security surety you have to put into that. So that's a look how long Iran's been at it. They started this when the Shah was in power. So. Uh, the idea that you can just, you know, wing over to Islamabad and fly back with a nuke, it's just not going to work that way. So I, I'm modestly optimistic that we're not going to have this rapid proliferation on the west side of the Gulf. Mike, maybe the second question? Um, yeah, the, regarding the, the S-300 and other systems, I mean, if the Gulf is, is really interested in having capability as opposed to purchasing things um, you know, kind of a patronage system uh, to guarantee their security. I don't know how they would expect to integrate the S-300, S-400 into systems with THAAD and, and uh, uh, Aegis and PAC. I mean, we have a hard enough time uh, just getting uh, Patriot and THAAD to talk, to get to each other in a coherent manner. Uh, so I, I can only imagine how difficult it would be to integrate uh, uh, or make interoperable an S-300 or a Chinese system. And I think this is a, uh, we talked, it was talked about earlier this morning about uh, uh, Turkey purchasing a Chinese uh, air slash missile defense system. It's going to be very challenging to uh, integrate that effectively into a larger network. Maybe just briefly the uh, question on Iran. Um. Can I also take a quick shot at, at the, of course you can. the cascade of, of proliferation? Because I'm less optimistic than you are, Kevin. Um, so, Andrew, as you know, the most effective uh, preventer of, proliferate, of nuclear proliferation is actually reliable American security guarantees, right? Um, but extended deterrence, as you also very well know because you wrote the book on it, is extraordinarily difficult to do. It was difficult to do with Europeans who are our closest friends in the world. It is even more difficult to do with big countries of the Gulf for a whole host of cultural, religious, and other reasons. So, I mean, it came up in the run-up to the Camp David summit. Um, Hillary Clinton, I think when she was Secretary of State, said something about extending the nuclear umbrella and then quickly dusted it under the rug because imagine that conversation um, in Congress. I, I don't think we can credibly extend nuclear deterrence to the Gulf at this point in time. And I think that's why I am less confident that the countries in the region aren't going to seek one of many varieties of proliferation cascades. And to the question about Iran, um, I love it that you asked it because I think this actually, I consistently marvel that our country, which has Madison Avenue, Hollywood, and Silicon Valley, somehow fails to win information wars, right? Because we're actually good at them. And the challenge we ought to be setting for ourselves with Iran is how to force this awful Iranian government into a conversation with its own population 
that it has to justify its choices, that it has to justify why it is willing to continue on a nuclear weapons program that is imposing this amount of privation on Iranian society. We ought to be having that conversation constantly. We ought to be having a conversation about civil liberties in Iran and the rule of law in Iran and sharing our vision for a positive, prosperous, powerful Iran in the region if it had a government that respected its own people and played by the rules. Good Great. summary. Ian, I know you will keep it within the parameters of missile defense, but go ahead. Sorry that I didn't. That's okay. Thank you. Bilal, in your introductory remarks, you mentioned the fact that uh, there was a scud fired uh, from Yemen into Saudi Arabia. And you throw on top of that um, the scud that was fired from Syria that landed in Turkish territory. How has the, the fact that we now have missiles falling into the hands of non-state actors or and missiles in failing states affected the calculus of missile defense collaboration in the GCC? If I were a defense minister in the GCC, I would be imagining my future wars to look like Israel's wars in Lebanon or against Hamas. And I would want the closest possible cooperation with my like-minded fellow countries. I would want to um, get, get a political understanding and an enforceable agreement about the role that non-state actors play and about the penalty that ought to be imposed on countries that support non-state actors. Um, asymmetric war is here, and ballistic missiles are the leading edge of a very different kind of strategy that I think all of us need to think about for the region. And it raises the, the value of missile defenses enormously. Do you want to answer that? Um, yeah. I, I, might push back a little bit, Corey. It's, I mean, I, I the one of the things that uh, is kind of a prof profound about the, the Gulf Arab states is they do not differentiate between internal and external security issues. And to me, if I'm Saudi Arabia, the thing I worry about most is not necessarily Iran, but the development of groups like Al Qaeda, um, ISIS, or uh, Daesh. Uh, and those that, um, I mean, there is serious internal security threats within especially Saudi Arabia. I think in, uh, in Bahrain you see it, but it's, it's not as uh, militaristic, except for the, the, the fringe members uh, of the Shia community right now. Um, so I don't foresee ballistic missiles being an issue, but I see mortar rockets um, and short-range systems 100 kilometers or less being an issue, and that's not something that missile defense necessarily wants to try to combat because it's not a cost-effective move, and it would have to be very uh, mobile uh, to be of use. In Israel, you know, with Iron Dome, you know where the, the rockets are going to come from. They're gonna, either going to come from Gaza or um, from southern Lebanon. So you can array your defenses. If you're in Saudi Arabia and you have uh, movements like Daesh running around, you're going to have to be very mobile, and it's going to have to be a different type of system, I suspect. Admiral, do you want to add anything, or we're good? Uh, yeah, I think you've, you've introduced a new sort of refinement of the threat. Some of those, those multi-hundred-kilometer rockets are essentially ballistic missiles. I mean, it's, it's a degree of accuracy we're talking about and a degree of sophistication, but you start raining those things down, you better be shooting them down. And Iron Dome, 
is, is I think an exemplar of, of an integrated mobile but integrated uh, system that allows for decision making within the time allowed by the threat to, to engage or not engage based on a very accurate uh, understanding of where that thing's headed. So uh, that's what the golfies should be thinking about, whether it's uh, against an internal uprising of some sort where some non-state crowd gets a hold of one of these things. So the rockets are going to be easier, to, mm -hmm. as we saw in Iraq with the Iranian rockets coming in there. They're going to be easier to, to get into those hands than the ballistic missiles uh, to the point where it's no longer asymmetric warfare. This is... Sports this are. is the new normal, yeah. right. and we, we need to get used to it and put our head around it. So one caveat about my optimism, I, well, I take the definition of optimism from a very good Arab friend of mine, and I, and I am an optimism because, optimist because I believe today is going to be better than tomorrow. So, <laughs> uh, I think it was mentioned in the earlier panel uh, about NATO GCC cooperation, and um, you know, just like other countries, the GCC countries are very jealous about their sovereignty, and their concern is that with greater integration of defenses, they would be jeopardizing their sovereignty. But that's not necessarily the case, given NATO's example. Uh, is there much to learn from NATO? How do you see the role of the organization uh, uh, in the GCC for, for any of you? Briefly, we've got another five minutes. I think there's an enormous amount to learn from NATO, um, both in terms of putting aside uh, your prior grievances and your distrust of each other because you need to cooperate on the present and the future. Um, NATO has done that better than any other alliance and, and I think the GCC could actually learn a lot from that. There's the practical cooperation, the importance of routine training together, of military planning together, of thinking your way through exercises um, in real time, all of those good things. The GCC countries, if they could bring themselves politically and militarily up to NATO standard, Iran would be irrelevant. Mike? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, as I think I mentioned earlier during our workshops, we had a representative from NATO speaking about how NATO went about developing a policy um, and, and addressing a lot of the issues, including sovereignty, um, you know, where debris is going to fall, who takes the shot, et cetera. Uh, there was a genuine interest in how this is done, expressed by all of the Gulf um, participants in both workshops. And they were asking hard questions about how do we, how do we get in and, and experience what, learn from your experiences. Um, and in fact, we've been talking with the NATO Defense College about possibilities mm -hmm. um, because it's, it's easier for them to do it to come to the Gulf and explain things. But uh, no, I, I think there's a lot to be learned. Um, but Was I, there but I participation in the workshop? I'm curious, oh, yes, because um, they're outside the ICI framework. Yeah, no, there was a lot of, in fact, they were the, some of the ones that were most interested in this. And it may be a result of who they um, put forward to participate in the workshops, I don't know. Um, but uh, I'm relatively optimistic. Um, but someone once told me an optimist is just a poorly informed pessimist, so who knows? <laughs> so I got yeah. two more minutes. Uh, maybe I'll just uh, Well, one, one thing on NATO is, is I do think there's, there's opportunity there, and 
you know, if you start talking missile defense, you immediately start thinking UK, France, United States. I mean, you immediately go to the top, Germany even, top tier. Uh, but there's a lot to learn at the, in the blocking and tackling level from some of the new Gulf states, uh, especially the Balts, uh, Poles, some of the Eastern Europeans that, that are at a different level of sophistication, that are unlearning things still from the Soviet era, uh, that are getting their head around what it means to be in NATO now. And so they're, they're much less mature in NATO speak. And I think, uh, I think that would be a good way to lead uh, a discussion now in all the areas that need to be addressed. It's not simply missile defense. Save that for the for the big countries. Got it. But there's a lot more going on. Uh, our own Navy midshipmen that could take note of this can learn a lot about mine warfare from the three Baltic countries. Yeah, that's so a great point. These, these guys are really good at what they do, and they'll mm -hmm. find those little niches, apply them into the region, get top cover from your civilian and military leaders. And get and simultaneously in the region from those uh, civilian and military leaders get demanding expectations of performance. If I may make one last point, um, the most important thing to learn from the NATO experience is that the process matters hugely. It sure. conditions people's expectations. And one of the things, as I look around the region of the Middle East, that strikes me most is how little confidence people have in future iterations of problems. That is, you know, everybody's afraid of one man, one vote, one time. Everyone's afraid that if you take a decision on who commands the cooperative Arab force, it has to be permanent. What NATO is absolutely brilliant at is dual track decisions, right? To have it both ways simultaneously because you're gonna, you know you're gonna be constantly balancing these things forever. So you rotate leadership positions, you share sovereignty on these kinds of things. You have constant talks in the hallway that in many ways are more important than what gets said in the meetings. And that culture of cooperation, if the countries of the Middle East could get that, so much else that is good for them would be possible. And I'll say it again. I think the questions that you raised would form a terrific backbone for next year's panel. Uh, <laughs> but with that, thank you so much. Please join me in thanking the panels for a terrific conversation. <laughs>